You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 54 of Ask Concussion Doc. Uh, I'm a little bit subdued today. We just came from the allergist. I just found out that my little baby has a anaphylactic reaction to some nuts. Um, and uh, so I'm just a little bit distracted and upset. So I'll try to get through. I'll try to answer any questions. Uh, if anyone out there, um, apparently there's a therapy called oral immuno therapy where they introduce small bits of an allergen uh, over time to potentially lessen the reaction. Apparently the evidence on it is mixed. If anyone has experience with it and wants to kind of send me a DM, I'd be glad to hear from you. I think my I'm going to dig into the research on it myself as well and start looking up some journal articles. But um, um, yeah, it's just like I feel like I'm just so nervous right now. I'm just so anxious. Um, so I just came from there. I haven't had a ton of time to prepare, but um, I, I mean, I don't usually. So <laughs> uh, we'll get into the questions. So three questions today uh, for on the concussion related front. Um, number one was what are the most uh, are the highest concussion related sports which sports have the highest risk of having a concussion uh, the second question is regarding what Sam uh, do concussions make you tired oh concussions and fatigue and um, I'll talk about there's a few different ways that obviously it can make you fatigued whether it's PCS post concussion syndrome side of things or whether or not it's acute in the acute phases um, so there's two kind of differing explanations that I'll provide for that and the third one is about POTS uh, we've had this question recently a few times and so we figured we would try to throw it in sooner rather than later uh, it was later in the queue but we figured we would up it um, so POTS is postural or orthostatic uh, tachycardia syndrome which is when you have a spike in heart rate it's an autonomic uh, um, a, a, a dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system and I'll get into um, the diagnostic criteria assessing as well as um, what type of treatment and management are there um, it can be related to head trauma um, in about 11% of cases the POTS um, diagnosis kind of um, comes shortly after some sort of head trauma so it can be um, potentially resultant from head trauma, but it's also something that occurs just in the normal population, uh, usually in women of you know childbearing age and, and kind of adolescence. Uh, so I'll talk a bit about POTS um, because it can be related to concussion, but it's also just something normal that maybe people find interesting. Uh, okay, so first off, just talking about sports. Um, this stuff is just coming from, from our course uh, notes. So um, there's been a few systematic reviews on this that take a look at all the epidemiological research that's been done. Uh, first, when you look at adults in terms of gameplay, so match play, the highest concussion-related sport is men's rugby. And the way that they judge this is based on what's called athletic ex exposures. So AE, athletic ex exposures. And the way that it's done is usually, well, not usually, but the way that it's done is, is an athletic exposure is one athlete participating in either one game or one practice. So that one athlete is one athlete exposure. And so generally what they do is they'll, they'll, 
take the incident rate of concussion based on a number of athlete exposures. So in this particular case, all of these ones look at the number of concussions per 1,000 athlete exposures. So for example, if you have a you know, a rugby match, let's say there's 20 players aside, uh, that would constitute 40 athlete exposures in that one game. Is everyone following me there? Similarly to practice, if you have one team practicing, that would be 20 athlete exposures for that one practice, okay? So that's athlete exposures. So men's rugby is number one for gameplay. Uh, and this was from a systematic review from Prian et al. in 2018. And the number is three concussions per 1,000 athlete exposures. The second one was found to be men's American football, and that's 2.5 athlete uh, injuries per 1,000 athlete exposures. Third on the list is women's ice hockey. So women's ice hockey, 2.27 concussions per 1,000 athlete exposures. Men's ice hockey, 1.63 concussions per 1,000 athlete exposure followed by women's soccer, and then next up is men's soccer. And this is kind of a trend you'll usually see throughout concussion literature is anytime there's a sport that involves both men and women, the women will tend to have more concussions than the men's side of things. So that's for gameplay. Same systematic review also looked at practices or training. And men's rugby, again, was the highest on the list for uh, concussion incidents. Interestingly, women's rugby isn't on here, but I don't think it's been included in a lot of studies. And so I don't, I think it was excluded from the systematic review itself. So um, it's probably up there with men's, if not higher than men's, but we don't know. Uh, men's rugby, these numbers are a lot lower than gameplay. So for example, in gameplay, obviously it's, it's three injuries per 1,000 athlete exposures. In training, however, it's 0.37 per 1,000 athlete exposure. So significantly less. Next on the list for training was women's ice hockey at 0.31 per 1,000 athlete exposures. Then third was men's American football at 0.3 per 1,000 athlete exposures, then followed by women's soccer. And then fifth was men's ice hockey. And then sixth was men's soccer. Uh, so again, you see anytime there's women's and men's together, the women's tend to uh, rank higher than the men's in terms of concussion incidents. Now, there's a couple sports that weren't on this list and don't think that they're not up there. Number, number one that should be included is mixed martial arts. So mixed martial arts, and this is looking at only fights. This is looking at fights in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So it's not very generalizable because we don't know what if it's the same rate in other areas. But in Calgary, Alberta, looking at mixed martial arts fights sanctioned by um, either Calgary or Alberta, uh, the number is 147 concussions per 1,000 athlete exposures. So rugby had an athlete exposure of three injuries per 1,000. And this has 147 per 1,000 uh, athlete exposures, which means that an athlete exposure would be, a fight would be two athlete exposures. So essentially what this is saying, is to put this another way, is that about 15% of all MMA fights will result in concussion. So that's a huge number, okay? So I would say that that one is top of the list right now. Uh, Aussie rules football. So rugby was three injuries per 1,000 athlete exposures. This study here looking at Aussie rules football 
found that it was 9.5 per 1,000 athlete exposures. Um, players have a 10% chance per year of getting a concussion. So in Aussie rules football, about 10% of players are going to get a concussion each year. Um, that's pretty consistent with other sports we've seen at the university level, um, particularly hockey, football, etc. So uh, that number isn't that far off, but the number of 9.53 per 1,000 athlete exposures is quite a bit higher. So that's in, these are usually in, in adults. This study here was a systematic review that looked at 18 and under, so youth sports. So just to see if it's any different. Number one, again, rugby. 4.18 concussions per 1,000 athlete exposures. Number two was ice hockey at 1.2 concussions per 1,000 athlete exposures. Number three was American football at 0.53. Now, I put a little asterisk on this one because this number is a lot lower than what I've seen in other studies. So they may have just picked or, or chosen different studies that showed lower incidence rates, but I think football is, is still um, up there. Uh, next is lacrosse, uh, men's lacrosse. Five is um, soccer, um, both men's and women's, wrestling, basketball, softball, baseball, cheerleading, and then volleyball. So as you make your way down the list. So top three, rugby, hockey, football, those tend to always be the top three across the board. So that's for youth. Okay? So that's the highest risk sports for concussion. Question number two, can a concussion make you tired? Yes, concussion, what it actually is in the acute phases is an energy deficit. So you have a concussion, it creates this, uh, what they call a neurometabolic cascade of events that starts happening. So you get depolarization of neurons, you get an ion exchange, uh, and you get calcium flooding into the cell. When calcium comes into the cell, it disrupts the mitochondria's ability to create ATP. So ATP is our energy molecule. So what happens after the initial injury happens, you have two phases. You have the excitatory phase, which you know is a very short duration thing, maybe you know 30 seconds to a minute to five minutes, very short duration. And then people generally start to go, okay, no, I think I'm okay, I feel better. And then over the next few hours to days, they start to go downhill. And the reason is because of that energy deficit that starts to occur after the injury. And generally, if you've been around anybody with a concussion before, you'll notice that they become very tired, irritable, sleepy, want to go to bed. And that's because that energy level just starts falling, 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 falling. Um, and that's a reason why concussion can make you very fatigued in the acute stages is because you're burning more energy than you're creating and your body just wants to go into sleep mode. So that's in the acute phase. Now, for those patients that have had symptoms for you know months and months and months that are still having fatigue, I covered this in a previous episode talking about, um, I think the episode was like headaches when reading or something and, and also um, neuro fatigue. So the reason or one theory behind why that might be is that you have two kind of brain networks that, are, that work um, one at a time. So for example, your default mode network, which is also known as the ego, is kind of your self-talk. Is your, you know, oh, what do I, what, what, like, what, what am I going to do later today? Do I need to get groceries? Um, 
et cetera, et cetera. Just thinking things inside your thought, the random thoughts that you might have. Um, it's also your ability to think into the future and plan things and also think back into the past and remember things, right? So this is our what they call the time travel, you know, our ability to move back and forth, um, you know, within our own mind and think of things. Then you have what's called your executive network. So when you're dialed in on a task and you're just focused on it, on that task, you're using your executive network. Generally, those two networks, executive and default mode, don't work at the same time, right? When your executive network's on, your default mode network shuts off. And vice versa, when your default mode network kicks on and you're just daydreaming, you're not really focused on a task. You're kind of just in default mode network, right? And if anyone's ever driven anywhere and you get there and you've been driving for an hour and you go, I don't remember anything about that drive because you're off in your default mode network and the driving is kind of just taking care of itself automatically, right? So those two things, that's the thing. When one turns on, the other one shuts off and vice versa. In people with concussion, they found when they look at fMRI and they look at brain activation areas, they find that both of these networks are on at the same time. So when they give you a task and you're in the fMRI machine, in a normal healthy subject, the default mode network shuts off and you see activation of the executive network because they're performing a task. When you put somebody in with uh, persistent concussion symptoms, their default mode network doesn't shut off. It stays active. So they perform more poorly on the task, but you're also using double brain power to try and achieve the same result, which is actually a lower result. So you're using twice as much energy to arrive at a shittier result is essentially how that works. So that is one theory behind why you might be fatigued in the chronic state. Going back to some of the stuff that I talked about in that episode, I go into a full thing on it in that episode, so I would encourage you to go back and find that. I don't know what number it was. Was it 50? I think it might have been 50. Episode 50. If you just go back and listen to that, we do a full explanation for this. Um, the interesting thing about that, it is not just people with concussion that have this problem. It's people with generalized anxiety disorder, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, people with chronic stress, all of these things can make it so that your default mode network doesn't shut off and your executive network, uh, when your executive network's working. So when you have something that's going on that's anxiety provoking, I just told you some news about my daughter. I'm having a difficult time trying to stay on track because it keeps creeping into my head of, of this other thought. So that's what anxiety does to you. It makes your performance suffer and it's a lot more taxing to try and coordinate multiple thoughts at the same time. This is what people with concussion go through, but it's also something that's anxiety related. And this is the role that mental health plays in persistent concussion symptoms. The whole idea behind a lot of mental health therapies is to quiet the default mode network. Because if you can shut off or at least make the self-talk reduced when you're performing tasks, you'll burn less energy and you'll perform better on those tasks. So anyone who's currently having neurofatigue and wondering why and not performing well cognitively, oh, I can't focus when I try to do work, I can't focus when I try to read books, all of that stuff, you need to take a look at the mental health side, okay? There's anxiety, there's depression, there's thoughts that are creeping in that are distracting you from what you're trying to do on the executive network, and then you're burning more energy and you end up with neurofatigue. I do a full explanation of this on episode 50. I'm not gonna go into it again, but go back and check it out. And please, everyone, keep in mind the mental health aspect of persistent concussion symptoms, all right? If you can control the anxiety and control the depression symptoms and reduce 
the self-talk and quiet the mind. This is where meditation becomes helpful. Mindfulness, all of these things can help you to recover from your concussion, have less fatigue, and better cognitive results. Okay? So those are the two things. Acute, you've got energy deficit. The energy deficit recovers. So in your after a month, it's no longer related to energy deficit. Right? So it's not... It's not, I have a brain injury, my energy levels are low, that's why I have so much fatigue. It's something else that starts creeping up and generally it's, it's the default mode network and they call it default mode interference because it's interfering with your shit, okay? That's why. Uh, okay, oh, POTS, that's what we're on now. All right, postural, orthostatic, tachycardia. Tachycardia is a high heart rate, a sped up heart rate, all right? So, it's a form of dysautonomia, which means it's a disorder of the autonomic nervous system. It's characterized by either having sustained tachycardia, so meaning a high elevated heart rate when you're you know, out and about, greater than 100 beats per minute. Normal resting heart rate for an adult is 72. So if you're up above 100 at a sustained heart rate, that's considered postural orthostatic hypotension. Orthostatic means pos like position. So from supine, laying on your back, to standing, that's a change in position. So that's orthostatic, okay? There's three, uh, three clinical subtypes. There's hypovolemic, meaning you have low blood volume, right? If you don't have enough blood volume and you stand up and the blood pools down, your heart has to speed up to try and, try and get enough blood flow to your brain so you don't go unconscious. So there's hypovolemic. There's neuropathic, which is um, you have a, a sympathetic dilation of blood vessels in the lower limbs, um, which causes, again, blood to pool. And then number three is hyperadrenergic, which is related to your adrenal system. Overactivation of the adrenal system, creating elevated heart rate, postural orthostatic hypotension. So you have a development of excess plasma norepinephrine on standing, leading to a profound sympathetic activity. Now, presence, or sorry, prevalence, one, it's between one million and three million Americans suffer from POTS. Uh, the symptoms could be dizziness, lightheadedness upon standing, vertigo, headaches, nauseousness, reduced mental clarity, a swimming or rocking sensation, and generalized fatigue, which sounds a hell of a lot like post-concussion syndrome. So then it becomes difficult again. What are we looking at? Maybe this person just has POTS. Let's rule it out. How are we going to rule it out? So the diagnostic criteria for an adolescent, meaning, meaning between 12 and 19 years of age, it's typically when you might start to see it, uh, particularly in females. 12 to 19 year olds, if you have a heart rate increase, and the way that you measure this is from supine, lying on your back, quiet resting heart rate for two to five minutes, take the heart rate, then you stand. If there's an increase in your heart rate, by greater than 40 beats per minute, um, or if you have a sustained orthostatic, meaning standing heart rate of greater than 120 beats per minute, okay, that is looking a lot like POTS, and or you could have a change in blood pressure uh, by from supine to standing by 20 uh, millimeters of mercury on the systolic and an increase of 10 millimeters per mercury on the diastolic from supine to sitting. So you have elevated heart rate, elevated blood, blood pressure. If you're 19 years or older, or sorry, 19, uh, over 19, you have a heart rate, everything else is the same except the heart rate increase, instead of being a 40 beat jump, it's actually uh, only a 30 beat jump. So from supine to standing, you have an increase in your heart rate 
uh, 30 beats per minute or greater. So that's for 19 and up, okay? I've had a few patients with this with concussion injuries, and they've all been adolescent females actually, but the way that I picked it up is we're going to do a treadmill test and you know their heart rate is you know resting normal they're fine and then all of a sudden they stand up and their heart rate jumps to 130 and you're like oh okay um so now you have to start looking at it and start doing testing where you're doing supine to standing and that type of thing looking at blood pressure looking at heart rate um and ultimately the management for this like you have to look at a lot of different things not just heart rate blood pressure um to kind of arrive at this diagnosis but the management for this generally is referring the patient back to their family physician for further testing um, and to really look at you know all the potential causes of what's going on right is it adrenal is it hypovolemic um, or is it uh, neurologic the initial management generally for POTS is trying to increase venous return back to the heart so things like increasing uh, blood volume through increased fluid intake increasing blood pressure through increased sodium intake and again this is all after or during you know you have you have the patient's family doctor back involved and additional testing going on um, wearing compression stockings to help with venous return coming back to the heart so compression stockings on the lower limbs to help drive blood back to again increase peripheral resistance to get that blood going back um, and there's potentially some pharmacological medications that may be able to be taken to help with this. And there's also increasing evidence for the use of cardiovascular exercise. It's progressive training. So this is the way that you know a PT or a chiro or something can get involved with the management of somebody with POTS is progressive exercise training in conjunction with their primary healthcare provider. I'm going to go into a little bit on how to do this. I'm not going to cover all of it. Uh, we cover all of it in our, in our, in our, in our full training course. Um, but generally what you have to do is you have to find out what their safe kind of rate is and then what their starting base rate is. And it's all based on heart rate. It's based on their resting heart rate. It's based on um, their age. It's based on their max heart rate. And then you do some calculations and you arrive at what's called their maximum steady state or their MSS. Then you take a percentage of their MSS and it's usually 75 to 85%. And then you gradually introduce cardiovascular exercise at that level. Once they're able to achieve that level without having increased symptoms, you can then increase that gradually over time. But this might take months to get there. It's very potentially slow for a lot of people. So it takes a lot of work to try and get this to resolve. And again, co-managed with some other healthcare professionals and some other modalities to try and get it to work. Um, so once you figure out what their optimal training level is, then you have to figure out what exercise is going to be most beneficial. This creates problems for us as concussion clinicians when we're trying to use increased exercise and exertion to try and help reduce post-concussion symptoms. And you have somebody with POTS where it's, they can only train to a certain level and it kind of clouds things a little bit. And then what kind of exercise prescription do you give them? So the general kind of rule of thumb is that exercise should be started in either seated or supine as much as possible. So rather than upright stationary biking or walking on a treadmill, you'd be doing things like maybe looking at the rowing machine or maybe doing um, a recumbent or a seated 
bike um, to try and try and get you know some exercise going, particular heart rate, while not you know getting the um, the orthostatic side of things you know elevated. Okay, so it's a progressive thing. Uh, anyone who wants to look further on this, you can dig into some of the literature around it and things you can do. Um, so that is basically all I have to say about POTS is that the there is some evidence to show that exercise therapy can be beneficial. Uh, there's a lot of other things that should be looked at and ruled out, so make sure you're co-managing this um, with, with the primary care provider. Um, and it may take some time, so just from managing patient expectations, uh, there might be a lot that has to go into it okay all right all right guys thanks everyone i made it through <laughs> good uh okay cheers uh we'll be back next week and then we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus uh i'm going on vacation up to the great white north and um so we'll take a few weeks off where we won't be doing any kind of live q a sessions um maybe i'll just go live when i'm up there i'll go live in my boat fishing that'd be cool <laughs> you guys can watch me rip some walleye lips all right, guys. Cheers. Have a good week. See you later.